To say law enforcement officers need all the help they can get preventing and solving crimes is likely a gross understatement. Nationwide, crime rates are on the rise. While solving crimes and bringing suspects into the judicial system are becoming more and more difficult. Due to an array of reasons, from staffing to backlogs of cases to be investigated, law enforcement needs resources to help get the job done. It's why we support and rely on anonymous tips from Crime Stoppers and why there are nationwide hotlines helping us address crimes at alcohol, tobacco, and firearms all the way to the Secret Service and Homeland Security. One of the latest growing yet most difficult to investigate is the crime of human trafficking, included under the umbrella of modern-day slavery. Fortunately for law enforcement agencies, there are resources available to help with those lengthy and cumbersome investigations. Hope for Justice is one such resource. And as we spotlight January as Human Trafficking Awareness Month, I'm happy to welcome three of the organization's employees to this episode of NCJA 1014. I'm turning around. I'm driving down Quinn. I'm turning around to see if I can find him again. Subject to 1074, electronic identity aware. We welcome Jeff Bolatieri and Richard Showburl. This trifecta of investigative talent is rounded out by a familiar name and voice to this podcast, Bill Lokes. Until recently, Bill was an instructor course developer on the West Campus in Edneyville. And if you've listened to episodes where Bill was a guest, you know how knowledgeable he is in the fields of narcotics, surveillance, and my all-time favorite discussion on hemp. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. There is much to cover, so let's get to it. Bill, since you bring a wealth of podcast experience to the table, let's begin with you. And I'd like for all three of you to kind of give us a brief overview of your background and expertise in law enforcement. And Jeff and Richard, if you guys will come right in behind Bill, we'll get the initial pieces right out in front of everybody. Sounds good. All right. Thank you, Kirk. My name is Bill Out. I've retired from Metro Nashville, Tennessee Police Department, a large-scale police department there in Tennessee. Uh, at the time when I left in 2018, we had around 1,500 officers. Throughout my 16 years with Metro alone, I basically worked patrol for one year, day for day. After that, I was sucked into what they call some specialized units. I worked three years as a flex officer, um, and basically you're a problem solver working for the precinct commander trying to suppress crime before we got to every Friday's lovely ComStat meeting. So your schedules and change, your days off would change. After that, I moved into the narcotics realm, but I started off my narcotics realm working as an actual gang detective. I had a knack with and a drive for trying to get dope seizures and was trying to go into full-time narcotics, but it was a very hard position to get into. They did have some opening in gangs, and I think there was about 75 people that applied for the five positions that they had opened up. Um, became extremely lucky, got selected, so I spent three years as a gang detective. Working in gangs, I worked everything from homicides to collecting intel to a lot of learning things like phone work, geofencing, traffic, um, 
803 wiretap investigations. Uh, my first jump in to the gang realm was day two. I was sitting in a wire room as we were up on a wiretap on an MS-13 investigation. So needless to say, I got thrown in the deep end of the pool very, very fast. One thing I did try to have a concentration on working as a gang detective was I tried to focus most of my cases into the drug realm, but they always had a gang nexus to them. Um, so that kind of set me up for the next venue, which when some openings come up into long-term narcotics, uh, I was able to make the transition over there, got selected into that. And my last several years at the police department, I stayed in narcotics. Um, I did everything from running our clan lab team to working in teaching our clan lab certification, dealing to the hazmat programs and doing our training for our new drug investigators that were coming in to the units because uh, as new guys and gals were coming in, we were realizing there was a lot of mistakes that were consistently being made across the board and it was changing the focus of policies and stuff like that. And every time you looked into it, we dealt with things that was always a policy failure or a lack of training. So we developed 40-hour training program for all the new drug investigators, guys and gals, as they were coming into that. From my experience level, I know that I've arrested my time there over 1,400 people. I've been the affine on more than 800 search warrants there, and those aren't just for residences. Um, those were for storage units. Those could be for vehicles, computers, cell phones, whatever it is. But uh, it didn't make me a rock star. It just meant that I was fishing in a stocked pond there. And there was 11 of us on that unit. So we were extremely, extremely busy and hustling 24-7. Um, I think on average, we worked about 70 hours a week out of that unit. My last Two years, I started, I don't want to say really get burned out, but I kind of did. So we started working and developing some parcel interdiction stuff. So we were chasing drugs in boxes. And that was a hit. I want to say that was an untapped resource, everything from postal to the UPS hubs to FedEx to DHL to all the shipping yards. Um, and it kind of changed the landscape of how we were doing things and the realization of how large addiction is and the volume of controlled substances coming in to the U.S. Jeff, how about you? First, I want to take a minute to thank you, Kirk, for uh, for having us on here. It's awesome. Um, myself, I was 27 years with the Suffolk County Sheriff's Office in New York. I spent five years in uniform and 22 years as an investigator with the Special, special Investigation Unit. My last 16 years, I was with the Drug Enforcement Administration Four of those years, I was as a task force officer. The last 11 years, I was an executive officer in charge of the task force officers assigned from my department to, um, to the Drug Enforcement Administration. I was fortunate in that I got to work cases uh, transnationally. A lot of my cases were uh, South and Central America. Got to work with a lot of good people, really enjoyed it. And that's basically it. It's uh, simple, and I'll, I'll defer to Richard next. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Kirk, for having us just to echo that on uh, from Jeff's comments. Uh, so uh, my experience is we've got 25 years of law enforcement experience from gleaned from the FBI and the CIA's National Counterterrorism Center, uh, where I worked, you know, basically every uh, crime that there was uh, in the FBI's portfolio and worked counterintelligence and counterterrorism with the uh, National Counterterrorism Center in Langley. 
before leaving and going uh, now working as the U.S. team leader for Hope for Justice, managing our investigative capacity across the United States. Been with Hope for Justice for uh, going on seven years this year. In addition to working with Hope for Justice, I'm also a research professor at the University of Tennessee System. I uh, do a lot of research on counterterrorism and human trafficking, uh, as we see that as an emerging threat to us uh, from a national security standpoint. Uh, one of the things that we've concentrated on here with this nonprofit. Well, Richard, as long as you've got your voice tuned up, let me ask you the first question. As human trafficking has evolved, we hear a lot of different terms in law enforcement. I picked up from your website, hopeforjustice.org, a new one, modern day slavery. So the question I want to pose to you, which I hope will help our law enforcement listeners kind of kind of hone in on terminology as well as how this whole thing kind of works. Long question to say this. What's the difference between human smuggling and human trafficking? Well, I'll tell you, there's a there's a huge difference between the two. And when we look at human trafficking in itself, it really involves exploitation of, of men, women, children, you know, across the board. There's no prejudice in regards to that. Exploiting men, women, or children for, for forced labor or uh, sexual exploitation. So that differs from human smuggling, where we look at human smuggling being more of a provision of service, a transportation, uh, trying to sneak somebody into the country and and I try to tell people this. It's as simple as this. I've never once seen anyone raise their hand and say, please traffic me. Uh, but we see, you know, hundreds of thousands of people saying, please smuggle me. Now, that's not to say, even though they are distinctly different, one's voluntary, which is your smuggling, and one's involuntary, which is your trafficking because it's exploitation. It, that's not to say that a person who is smuggled into the United States is not vulnerable. Uh, to be exploited or vulnerable to be trafficked because those people who are being smuggled in here come in at, at a high risk of vulnerability. Uh, they have paid somebody uh, to smuggle them into the U.S. And then once they get here, they're in debt bondage and they have to pay that back uh, in some form or fashion. So it quickly can transcend from, from human smuggling into human trafficking. But they are different because one's voluntary, one's not. Well, and, and that helps a great deal because I've, I've talked with law enforcement officers at various stages and just the description that you provided all came under that umbrella of human trafficking. And you've just kind of cleared that up that, you know, some is voluntary, some is involuntary. And I guess in the most simplistic way, that's certainly one way that you can look at it. So thanks for bringing that clarity to the table. Jeff, I want to pull on your experience in narcotics. And let's talk about the relationship between human trafficking and illegal narcotics. Sure. So wherever you find human trafficking, you also find associated criminal activities such as uh, guns or drugs. So depending on the level of the trafficker, the association of illicit drugs to human trafficking may take on different roles. So for example, often following the grooming process, the trafficker will create some type of dependency for the victim. The victim becomes dependent on a trafficker, and whether that dependency is emotional, financial, physical, or something as simple as some place to live. So when I say physical, I'm describing a, a common occurrence where the trafficker gives the victim some type of narcotic, such as heroin, to create a physical dependency on a trafficker. So once addicted, the victim now relies on the trafficker as their source of supply. So now if you take that addiction and you combine it with some of the other factors that constitute the victim's dependency, such as financial dependency, somewhere to live, and the misguided trust that the trafficker gains from the victim through the grooming process, 
It helps you to understand why the victim may be resistant or fearful to leave a situation. So let's go one step further and talk about drug cartel involvement in human trafficking. So Richard already described the differences between human trafficking and human smuggling, and you understand that smuggling is voluntary and trafficking is involuntary. But there is a little bit of a caveat, and that's drug cartels. So in particular, the Mexican drug cartels. The roughly 12 major Mexican cartels have diversified and expanded into human smuggling and human trafficking. Why? Because they expand their profits threefold. So if we break it down, uh, for drug trafficking, Department of Homeland Security estimates that Mexican cartels earn approximately $6 billion annually for the, from the drug trade. And I would venture to guess that that's uh, a little conservative. So with human smuggling, depending on the age and nationality of the smuggling client, the fee or the peso ranges between $4,000 and $9,000 per person, depending on nationality. So Customs and Border Protection use those numbers and base the calculation on CBP or Customs and Border Protection encounters for the month of February 2021 only. And CBP estimated a total profit of $411 million for the month or $14 million per day. And that equates to roughly $5 billion annually. And those numbers are really much higher now. So with human trafficking, the cartels exploit the drug routes that they use, and they combine drug smuggling with human smuggling. So most of the victims are Central American, Mexican, but they also encompass other migrants from Africa, Pakistan, India, Haiti, Cuba, South America, etc. So often these smuggling customers are forced to transport drugs into the U.S. or forced into some type of indentured servitude to pay for their transportation debts, like sex work or serving as cartel soldiers or moving drugs for the cartel. So there's no financial estimates for the cartel's human trafficking profits, but I'm going to take a guess and say it compares to the drug and human smuggling numbers. So the cartels effectively triple their profits. So why is this happening in Mexico? The 2022 Trafficking Persons Report, or TIP report, issued by the U.S. State Department stated that Mexico is not in compliance with minimum standards to eliminate human trafficking. And the reasons given for that, they cite that their laws are outdated, the simple existence of the cartels, public corruption, indigenous customs, such as the sale of young girls for exploitation, and the unprecedented migration north in 2021, 1.7 million undocumented people crossed the border. And we know that realistically that number is, is much higher now. So needless to say, and again, you've kind of enlightened me, as I'm sure you have some of our listeners we don't really think about human trafficking as being a profitable business, but you've just rolled out some staggering numbers. Yeah, there's a lot of money to be made there. It's the fastest growing criminal enterprise that uh, exists today. Wow, that's kind of unbelievable. I want you to hang with me just a little, another minute here, Jeff, and I want to go back to Bill and and draw on both of your experiences. So, Bill, let me start with you and Jeff. I'd kind of like for you to grab a hold of that dovetail and, and keep the discussion going. Have you guys encountered human trafficking during your time in gangs and narcotics enforcement? Yes. In Nashville, the first time I ran across it and did not even realize it, and that was, to me, now looking back, this is a huge problem. Um, I was executing a search warrant on two separate gang locations in East Nashville. 
one of the gang houses we hit had multiple players in there. And we knew that the gang head at the time was also running what we classified as prostitutes. We ended up executing search warrant two different locations. It was a total drug and gun case all the way around. Hit the location. There was a couple girls inside of the location. One of the young girls kept trying to get the attention of one of our female detectives on the team. She took her to the back. The female detective did talk to her. And as soon as they had a conversation, it wasn't 30 seconds later, female detective and this, what we found out now was a 16-year-old girl come running out of the house. Female detective threw her in her car and said, I got to take her to the hospital now and took off lights and sirens to the hospital. And I was like, what is, what is going on? We figured out about an hour and a half later that the girl pulled the female detective aside and said that she had been having sex with multiple guys that day and she was on her menstrual cycle and she had three tampons stuck inside of her because quote from the guy who was my target of my investigation who was a gang leader bitch if you bleed on any of my dudes on any of my boys i'll kill you just like that and i was like so what i, I didn't understand that at the time i thought well okay he's he's a pimp she's a prostitute but she's 16 okay this was 2007. So when this case went to court, we essentially, it never got prosecuted for the prostitution side because the, even the district attorneys were baffled and they were like, well, yes, yeah, she's claiming that she's a prostitute. You've shown it in your cases, but you don't have an actual customer on a wire, actual making the transaction, the agreement for the sexual act for some sort of compensation, whether it's money or whatever the case is. It was the first time we've seen that. And that guy was actually running those girls and he was using that as a, those girls were working for a place to stay. And that falls under the force fraud coercion. If you do this, I will give you this place to stay. If you have sex with my boys, then you can stay here essentially. Second time we ran across it was when I was working in narcotics, and this was 2013 time frame. We'd gotten a tip that there was a little more than $200,000 of unaccompanied money coming on one of the Asian bus lines out of Flushing, New York. And that, that just that location itself becomes very important. We set up, we get the identifiers on the bus. We set up for a period of time, about four hours on the interstate, figure out the route. We know it's going to be coming through Nashville as one of the stop points. We're able to make a stop on it. We go through our whole bus interdiction scenario. We start pulling money out of, everybody's got their bags. We find the more than $200,000 of unaccompanied money. I want to say it was about two hundred sixteen dollars to $218,000. We're looking this as this is illicit drug proceeds. Well, at the same time, one of the bus driver, the bus driver is trying to talk to us, say, hey, look, there's something going on with those four girls there that are with that lady. And I was like, what do you mean there's something going on? He goes, well, those girls don't even have their bus tickets. He said, They're, that lady is controlling everything. Those do girls don't get to talk. And while one of them was sitting here going through a purse, her bag, as I was scanning everybody's tickets, getting on, doing my manifest, he said, that girl had nothing but condoms in her purse. But to me, that meant nothing, okay? But we're talking about four girls. They were all adult, but there was an older lady who was speaking for them. And he had already told me that 
the older lady was also holding all of their papers, meaning their tickets. They had no control over their situation. And he said, I also loaded some bags underneath and one of the bags broke open from one of the girls. And when it did, it had nothing but condoms and lube in it. Again, I wasn't paying attention to it. I was like, all right, I've got more than $200,000 here in unaccompanied money that we're about to seize. Looking back over the years and hearing more about human trafficking and going through some more cases of it, I realize now that those four girls, especially coming out of Flushing, New York, that was human trafficking. Those girls were going to end up either at one of the massage parlors, the illicit nail salons, whatever it is out there that get run up and down the eastern seaboard that are coming in. The older lady that was holding all of their papers and everything is what they call mama-san. That is the person that is running or in control of those ladies. I didn't realize that there was four girls that walked away, and I had no knowledge at the time or the understanding of what was actually transpiring. Because of the length of time, I wasn't able to do any follow-ups, didn't have their information. My eyes on the prize, being a narcotics guy, and working interdiction and dealing with all this, was looking at that seizure itself, the cash seizure. Now we can see that there's definitely a nexus tying up between both sides, and, and money is the root of all evil. So that's just two instances. One that I've seen on the gang venue, and I'm not the only person that has seen that scenario play out with the prostitute with multiple tampons and stuff stuck in them on menstrual cycles. I've heard this throughout various other training conferences. So it's not just exclusive to that one time, that one street in East Nashville that I've seen. This is a nationwide epidemic. And then plus what I've seen roadside working on a drug seizure or illicit proceeds from drugs. This tells me we're missing a lot. But two very chilling examples. Thanks, Bill. Jeff, how about you? Yeah. So, Kirk, I just want to say one thing uh, up front. So I retired in April of 2021, and I worked in a major metropolitan area, and I worked with two different um, organizations, and never once did I receive any training on human trafficking. So that being said, uh, most of my time in narcotics, uh, my cases were based in South and Central America because while I was with DEA, our focus was transnational narcotics. So in particular, I do recall a case that I had, and it was based between Panama, the island of Jamaica, and New York, and that was in 2010. And the case involved a Jamaican drug trafficking organization that was linked to Christopher Coke or Dudas Coke, uh, which obtained their cocaine in Panama, and they transported to Jamaica and then utilized mules to transport the cocaine to New York through various me methods, which included uh, swallowing, it was compressed, sewn into luggage, it was liquefied, and uh, then the drugs were transported by those mules on commercial air carriers. So on a number of occasions, uh, we had received electronic intercepts that enabled us to corroborate with human intelligence that supplied information for these couriers coming into JFK Airport. So after intercepting and arresting several of the, the couriers, uh, we were told common stories by the couriers that they were forced to transport the drugs or they and or their families were going to be killed. And at that time, Jamaica was a very violent place. And Christopher Cope was waging war against the Jamaican government to avoid capture and extradition to the U.S. 
In fact, many of the people that we were targeting at that time were randomly murdered before we were even able to either indict or extradite them here for prosecution. So ultimately, none of these mules that we arrested were given any real consideration during the sentencing process. They were prosecuted uh, federally, of course, because neither myself nor the prosecutors were educated about human trafficking. And during that time, there was not an abundance of, of training provided to law enforcement agencies, at least that I was associated with. Ultimately, these couriers, they went to federal prison, served their time, and were later deported back to their respected countries of origin. So did those couriers commit crimes? Absolutely. But they were also potential victims of human trafficking. And the question remains that I still ask myself this day, were they victimized twice? Were they victimized by the trafficker? And then were they victimized by the U.S. government? Uh, you know, because we weren't really aware of what was going on. Well, I, I hear two things coming out of both of your responses. Bill saying that he obviously witnessed human trafficking, but kind of didn't have his eye on that ball and you in a similar situation in your defenses. It also took the legislative piece and the judicial piece a while to catch up to exactly what human trafficking was and put some solid laws on the books. Fortunately, that has now happened. Richard, I want to pull you back into the discussion, and I'd like to kind of make it a little more centralized to our state. How has human trafficking, or let me put it another way, as a human trafficking investigator, how can you guys be force multipliers for law enforcement in the state of North Carolina? Well, Kirk, that's a great question because, you know, when we look, when we talk about law enforcement agencies and we talk about police departments and and such, one of the key factors is resources and uh, or lack thereof, particularly now during this movement that we've seen with the with the defund uh, law enforcement in certain regions of the country. Um, a lot of people not pursuing the career in law enforcement. So um, agencies are battling a myriad of different crimes, such as political violence, right wing extremism, uh, drugs, et cetera. And, uh, you know, not having those available resources, uh, particularly resources that are properly trained to go out and investigate human trafficking cases. Uh, investigators uh, that are licensed private investigators with the states that they work in or several other states can be a force multiplier in helping law enforcement agencies put enough meat on the bone uh, to go out and uh, look at these cases, build these cases. All of Hope for Justice investigators are retired law enforcement, so they have extensive experience working uh, investigations. So you're not getting someone who doesn't already know how to do this. And they build the case up so that it's basically put a bow on it, uh, providing surveillance uh, support, providing investigative support, um, working with some of these victims who otherwise may not want to cooperate with law enforcement. A lot of times uh, when we work, and I'm not, uh, I want to display the myth that human trafficking is, is, doesn't happen to U.S. citizens and only happens to foreigners. That's not the case. So I wanted to put that disclaimer on there before I said this. A lot of times individuals who may be victims of human trafficking, who might be from another country in the U.S., may not want to work with law enforcement because they fear uh, law enforcement because in the country they came from, law enforcement might be corrupt or they may fear they're going to get deported back to their country. So they may not want to work with law enforcement but are willing to work with a nonprofit like Hope for Justice. Um, so we can bridge that gap in working with unwilling victims. Uh, in this, but then also to the resource base has to be something law enforcement agencies need to take into account. Our resources are free. 
Um, all of our investigators are, are, are fully trained and have extensive experience working human trafficking or sexual exploitation or labor trafficking cases and, and can be that force multiplier. I mean, we can, all of us can, can literally grab hands and walk across the United States and still not eradicate this crime. It's, it's a very clandestine crime in nature. These individuals are not wearing T-shirts that says I'm a human trafficking victim. They're not wearing shirts that says I'm a pimp, I'm a trafficker. That's not the case. Um, so it's very difficult uh, and, and resource intensive for these agencies to put their in, uh, employees out on the street to do that. We can do that. We can work and provide that public-private partnership that we've seen uh, grow out of a lot of success from some of these major police departments, particularly, you know, NYPD has an outstanding one called the NYPD Shield Program, which is a public-private partnership where uh, the police department is partnered with private entities like private investigators, private security, in order to be that force multiplier. Well, and you touched briefly on something that I probably should have touched on at the outset of our podcast. This is not a problem that is centrally focused, say, on the United States or on Mexico or on Canada or wherever. It is an international problem. And Hope for Justice is an international organization. So I would, again, encourage our listeners to take a little time and go to the website, hopeforjustice.org and learn the breadth of this organization. Absolutely fantastic. Bill, I want to talk a little bit about training. And since you are that training guy, let's talk about what Hope for Justice can bring to the table again in North Carolina, what kind of training is offered, and if it is, how much does it cost? Well, first of all, the human trafficking training is absolutely free. Let's just throw that out there right up front. Anybody in any strapped financial resource can afford free. We will come to you. Uh, the best way to get a hold of us is hopeforjustice.org. And we'll have all of those in the show notes after the uh, podcast has done all of our contact information. We can come in and provide training for you, whether it's law enforcement, whether you're working in Department of Health and Human Services, or even in the banking financial sector or in hotels and hospitality industries, or in a clinical setting. And that becomes extremely important, especially when we're talking about the clinical setting, because people in the medical profession, just for an example, have more contact with human trafficking victims than most of us do in our day-to-day -day duties. We do know uh, statistically that approximately 88.6% of human trafficking victims at some point in time during their trafficking scenario have had some sort of medical attention, whether it's been the urgent care centers, the CVS, the dock in the box of Walgreens, walk-in clinic, the emergency room, or something like that. We can come in and provide training and show what the physicians need to be looking for in that setting, how to mitigate the muddy waters of HIPAA, which everybody hates that actual acronym itself, and learn what you can do and what questions you can ask and what you can actually report to actually be part of the force multiplication there. So in short, you reach out to us at hopeforjustice.org. We will come in and provide this training for you. And it's not just human trafficking. We can also talk about how controlled substances play into this. We can even talk about the digital world. What is going on with our kids online? Okay. And that's huge. And how victims are being preyed upon via the electronic world. The stuff we don't understand being 
40 and 50 years old. The stuff that our kids understand at 13 to 18 years old, though, and how they become victimized in this. So we as parents, um, community leaders need to get smart extremely, extremely quick on this. Um, We also have some free training that is on the Hope for Justice website also where you can take and register for the free training on there. You can take in person just on your own at your own pace. That'll take you through several scenarios, whether it's human trafficking for law enforcement, whether it's a general overview on human trafficking itself, human trafficking in the hospitality industry and hospitality in the clinic or human trafficking in the clinician's setting, meaning the medical side itself. Well, in this case, uh, there's the old saying, you get what you pay for. I kind of have a feeling that's not exactly true because you guys have talked about some incredible training that you offer, some great stories that you have shared, and just a plethora of information regarding human trafficking. And I just want to say again, on behalf of the Justice Academy, thanks for what you do, and more importantly, how you do it. January is Human Trafficking Awareness Month, and it is the privilege of the North Carolina Justice Academy to dedicate this podcast to share information and spotlight a valuable law enforcement resource. Hope for Justice is an international organization dedicated to fighting human trafficking and helping victims and survivors all around the world. Equally important is the support it provides to law enforcement agencies throughout the world. And you've just heard how it's done, courtesy of Richard Showburl, Jeff Boletary, and our good friend and former Justice Academy co-worker, Bill Lokes. Thank you for listening to this episode of NCJA 1014. Until next time, this is Kirk Puckett urging our law enforcement officers to be vigilant and stay safe. NCJA 1014.